0: Welcome to Listen In. My name is Stephanie Gates Sloan, and I want to invite you to listen in on conversations I have with my friends as we discuss engaging college students with the gospel. Dr. Goodlow, thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation with me. As you and I have briefly talked, Obviously, right now in our country, there are some really significant things that are happening. I believe that we're seeing God move and work and highlighting some issues that many of us already knew existed, but I think some other people are getting their eyes open for the very first time. And based on your experience and your education and what it is that you do now, I felt like you would be the perfect person for me to sit down with and have... A difficult conversation with specifically dealing with systemic issues that are happening in our country. Many times, those of us, especially uh, white Christian leaders, we tend to think what Martin Luther King Jr. did means that racism and these things don't exist anymore. And that's not the case. And so I'm thankful for your willingness just to, like I said, have a hard conversation. um, And I'm thankful for the way that you invest in other leaders and the way that you invest in the church uh, by sharing the things that, that you have learned and the things that you have, have experienced. And so I want to give you um, an opportunity to introduce yourself, uh, sh- to share a little bit about your education, what it is that you do in your family, and then we'll dive right on in.
1: Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's great to be with you and all of your uh, listeners. I'm just honored to be with you today and to discuss what I believe to be the most important um, The most critical conversation in my lifetime for this period of time in all of human history, not just Christendom. And uh, yeah, so uh, go by Goody, but uh, Goody Goodlow, Marcus Goody Goodlow. And uh, you and I met, uh, of course, at Dallas Baptist University through the Ph.D. program. Congratulations, by the way, you are in year three. Yes. And so I came through that program the first year of its, uh, its existence. And that was in 2005 and it was part of what we call cohort one. And so I want to encourage you to let you know that there's, there's hope. There is an end, uh, but be it as it may, I'm an adjunct uh, professor for DBU, although, and also a fellow for the, um, for what we call the, um, uh, the uh, Institute for uh, uh, Global Engagement, and I'm basically a King scholar there and write uh, and lecture on various issues related to matters of justice and equality. I do that. I I live in the sunny city of Redondo Beach here in South Bay. I have two amazing teens. One just turned 18 on her way to college and uh, another is 16 a son Hannah's 18 Josh is, um, Josh is 16 and then I'm married to an amazing woman her name is Lucy and she is a uh, nurse and we've been married 22 years and so DBU is home for us in so many ways not just as an adjunct professor but you know, obviously my alma mater and I do uh, work closely with members of our a leadership team there in various capacities and so honored to get a chance to work alongside uh, our president, Dr. Adam Wright, and members of our faculty such as, you know, Jack Goodyear and Norma Dean and others. But yeah, it's been a great journey and uh, just continue to try to advance the message of faith, faith, hope, and love to people who need it most. And so that's my heartbeat. I travel the country full time, I'm a lecturer, speaker, and I work with organizations from businesses and the prof to non-prof to churches to sports teams and universities and a range of issues from leadership to, to synergy to diversity issues and to issues related to law enforcement and community policing uh, things of that nature so yeah i do that chaplain for our police department here and i've worked with several departments across i uh, Metroplex and uh, as well, I've been speaking for a number of different law enforcement ent- entities that gather on a yearly basis. And so anyway, and my golf handicap, shall we say, is in progress. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
0: That's an important piece of information as well. When we spoke, I shared with you a little bit about what I do. You know, this is my 14th year in college ministry. And one of the things that's important for me to be able to recognize is during those 14 years, things have really changed. And one aspect that I have noticed that um, statistics back up is the increase in diversity amongst the students that I see on campus. Barna, Their most recent study on Generation Z, which is this demographic that's coming into college now, they're the largest demographic we have had in America. In fact, they're almost 50% non-white. And so as I start to consider that as a college minister, and I start to think about what does that mean for our local churches, for us to be able to engage them with the gospel, to have perspective on the worldview, and to have a better understanding of their experience. And Barna's writes out and says that when a student no matter if they're white or not walks into a room if it does not match the diversity that they're used to in their everyday life they will feel uncomfortable and when i read that that made me think automatically about my ministry and our diversity are we a good reflection of our campus and it made me think a lot about the over 90 churches that i work with and so these conversations have started happening not only because they need to happen But also we're not going to be able to engage this population of students if we're not aware of who they are and what's important to them. And diversity, thank God, I think is something that they're going to be able to put at the forefront of Christian leaders' attention. And I've prayed for God to move and work within racial reconciliation. And my hope is, is that this generation is going to force us there um, just based on their demographics. And so, as I said before, this is a conversation that needs to happen. And uh, I'm thankful to get to have it. And as I've been surrounding myself with people that don't necessarily look like me, specifically the UNT women's basketball team and some other friends, I've started asking questions and I've recognized that their experience growing up looks nothing like mine. And they've shared about some things that have happened to them. They share about things that happened to their parents. They share about fears and concerns that I had no idea was real. Maybe is a better way to say it was still actually happening today. And that really kind of got me to start to think through and wanting to study what are these systemic issues that are current today that I just didn't know about because I was never taught. And so I started reading books, started having conversations. And that's really what led us to where we are today. And so my hope is just to really give you an opportunity to share about systemic issues that you wish the local church understood and knew. And then at the end, as we kind of wrap up that, I want you to talk about what are some ways that you wish the church would respond? And so mm-hmm. I just want to kind of open it up to you and just let you start to share. And I'll ask some questions Um And we'll have, I'm sure, conversation in the midst of that. But ultimately, I just want to turn it over to you and say, Dr. Goodlow, what is it that you wish the church knew about matters of diversity, about matters of systemic injustice, as well as racial reconciliation? Because apart from having an understanding of what is really happening, reconciliation is really, really hard to pursue. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, again, thank you so much for that. And I think all your listeners and myself included will benefit greatly as we dialogue about these issues. The last thing you need from me is a lecture, but <laughs> be it as it may, I'll say a couple things uh, to start our, our time off today. One, you know um, I am mindful uh, that the role of the church or the church has a, not just a role to play. I think the role, the church has a central If not, dare I say, the most significant role to play with regard to bridging the divide along this issue of race uh, and confronting issues of racism, Uh, as we're talking now, I was just watching uh, some of the highlights from the events that took place down in uh, Talladega with Bobby, uh, with Bubba Watson of NASCAR. A powerful image and scene of men and women, uh, pit workers, fellow drivers walking with him, literally bringing him up to the front Mm -hmm. of the pack, if you will, uh, and standing in solidarity with him and rebuking and rejecting racism. You know, uh, to be frank, the church has to do uh, and lead and excel and advance further than even NASCAR, that we can't not be seen looking at these events or looking at these actions from other organizations uh, I think the church has to be seen as leading. Uh, you know, it's 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 not just NASCAR, it's uh, it's the NFL, it's the military, it's business and corporations, it's from Johnson and Johnson to Starbucks. I mean, everybody's having what I call a defining moment or a a a mirror moment or come to Jesus moment mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. and organizations mm-hmm. are having to reassess, reconsider. Uh, reimagine what their organizations or entities are doing with regard to confronting issues of racism. A colleague of mine, we were discussing uh, via social media, and we both agree that racism needs to run out of places to hide. Mm -hmm. And the church cannot be one of many. I think the church has to be the central force to advancing that because I believe ultimately it is through the power of love, the redemptive work of Jesus, indeed that we can seek to transform the hearts of women and men, but also, too, the church has to play an active role in confronting policies, systems, and laws. You know, the church needs to do more than pray. Yeah. If Dr. King, who was, by the way, an ordained Baptist minister, uh, studied at the highest of levels, earned his Ph.D. from, from Boston U, studied at Crozier Theological Seminary, I think sometimes as people of the faith, we have a tendency to forget Dr. King is one of us in every sense of the word. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he discusses so much as he talks to eight clergymen in that letter, as he wrote that letter in what I believe to be a, a 20th century epistle. Dr. King talks about the church having a not just a responsibility, but a mission, a mandate to, to be on the forefront of these issues, that they will not be resolved on the wheels of inevitability. They will not, issues of racism and injustice will not come to an end by virtue even of uh, time passing or, or, or what have you, but we have to continue to be intentional, deliberate. You know, what I tell people, Stephanie, is that there has never been an award given for silence in the midst of injustice, yeah, and so the church has a role to play. We see that President Kennedy said in 1963, talking about this issue of injustice and racism, and the issue of equality. He said, "It's as old as the script. It's as old as the scriptures, and as clear as the Constitution." Yeah. And yeah. when I read my Bible, when I read the ancient texts, it is Micah six eight. You know. That the Lord requires of us to seek justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. It is the Amos, the prophet of Amos, who called for that justice to roll down like waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. It is Isaiah who called for us to be repairs of the breach, to be the restorer of the desolate places that rely in ruin. It is, it is the teachings of Jesus. You know, as a community of faith, we're so quick to point to John 17. But before we can get to the priestly prayer of unity, God make us one. I've seen a lot of podcasts, a lot of rallies, a lot of meetings with pastors, uh, particularly evangelical pastors and some of my African-American pastors and leaders and friends. I've seen a lot of prayer meetings, a lot of talk about reconciliation and coming together and unifying the church. But, you know, before Jesus gets to the priestly prayer, there's a conversation he has with Jewish leaders with uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, even just with common people of his day where he spends his time addressing issues where, hey, the first is last and the last is first, where women were subjected, children were not esteemed, Samaritans were considered the other. And Jesus spends a lifetime of his ministry literally, uh, Taking that story, that narrative, and flipping it on his head, yeah. where he brings everyone uh, to an appreciation of this truth that we are all made in the Imago Dei. Yeah. In his book Howard Thurman, in his book Howard, uh, in his uh, book uh, Howard Thurman, the great theologian, uh, writes a book entitled "Jesus and the Disinherited." Jesus and the Disinherited, and he basically talks about what it was like. Uh, for Jesus to live in first century Palestine and what the people were up against facing Roman oppression and policies and laws that literally had Jews depended upon uh, their every uh, had Jews depended upon Romans for their every need from the amount of bread they were be, to be given a day, literally to the places they could worship to where they would pay taxes to all of these intricacies and laws and policies. And for so, Howard talks about how Jews constantly live with their backs against the wall. Mm-hmm. Howard then comes full circle. He wrote this, of course, in the 40s and 50s. He's no longer with us. He died in the early 80s. But he says there is no group of people, and I use the historic term that he used at the time, other than Negroes who understands like what it was in first century Palestine to live with their backs constantly against the wall. Where, where, where a conversation of uh, being pulled over by an authority figure, whether it's police or being walking into a boardroom or to a place where hiring is taking place or to reading a history book or to being taught by a professor that African-Americans are constantly in the category of not like the other. Yeah. You know, when we grew up, you and I grew up, we took those tests and I'm sure your listeners can relate. We took tests where we would have to choose which one of these is not like the other. <laughs>
0: yeah, I remember those.
1: <laughs> well, as African-Americans, we have always been, quote, like, uh, not like the other. Where the textbook we learn from of history, more than likely the doctors that were taking our temperature, the nurses, the professors standing in front of us, the elementary school teacher, the high school principal, the person we were interviewing with for our first job, the dean that we sat across from in college, graduate school, the person um, the person who controlled our taxes, the person who currently controls our Congress, over 96% white. Military leaders, almost 100% white until just literally last week with the addition of one African-American heading up the Air Force. Over 95% of NFL owners, white. Over 95 plus percent of NBA owners, white. I can talk about banks. I can talk about corporations. I can talk about the wealthiest and richest people in our nation, white. And so I'm laying all this out, university professors and Christian institutions, white, because the context in which we minister and serve as priests, as pastors, as prophets, that has to be taken into account as we proclaim the teachings of Jesus from pulpits and platforms. As one noted theologian would say, you have to have the scriptures in one hand and a newspaper in the other, or you have to have the scriptures in one hand and a reality in the other. And that is the people in your pews are being adversely impacted by policies, laws, events, circumstances for that you cannot afford as a spiritual leader, not to be woke not to have clarity and understanding. And so Maya Angelou, the great poet and writer says that prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future and renders the present inaccessible. And so for us as communicators of the scriptures, are those of us who are called to be priest and prophet, to be chaplains and uh, to be student pastors and senior pastors, uh, to be lay leaders, elders, and trustees. What is it that is required of us in confronting issues of prejudice? What's at stake? It's, it's, it is our past. It threatens our future. It renders us uh, inescapable of addressing uh, the things that are in front of us. And so the bigness of this moment cannot be missed. And so the church doesn't have a role to play. I think the church has a central role to play in doing what Dr. King said, redeeming the soul of humanity. And we do that. We do that because one is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 through 20 talks about God, uh, uh us being new, uh, us being, uh, in this sort of uh, reconciled relationship with him. And that in the making of, in the reclaiming of, in the making all things new, we are not only reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another. And then Paul says in that same passage, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God himself were making his appeal through us. And could it be that the impediment for which we have had in advancing issues of justice and equality, could it be that the gospel is not veiled or void? The power is not neutered. The scripture text is not unclear. Could it be, could it be that we have in some way failed to be true ambassadors? One, one pastor said a few weeks ago that we have presented a truncated gospel an abridged gospel. And when you present a gospel that's abridged or truncated, it allows you to enslave people who were made in the Imago day. It allows you to advance Jim Crow laws and laws of segregation. It involved it It, it allows you to have law and order posture. Yeah. It, it allows you to have pastors stand And bless leaders, but never have frank discussions with them when those leaders abuse the people they're called to steward and lead. See, we we, we can't be too quick to bless. We we can't be too quick, but, uh, you know, to bless, as, as I remember the text, Nathan not only blessed, but he rebuked. Samuel not only blessed, but he rebuked. And so I think the church has a role to play, specifically those women and men who have been positioned in places of influence, to let their light so shine before others that they may uh, that, that that they may see the good works that they do and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Yeah. Talk is cheap. Hashtags they only can do so much. Yeah. And so we need folks all in. You know, I know you're there in Dallas. A lot of your listeners, although this is being heard probably around the country, I imagine. But I remember living in Texas just over 15 years ago or so. And I remember, Stephanie, off of the I-35 billboard just as you passed the downtown area where the Mavericks played. There was a billboard of your then MVP, Steve Nash. He's a point guard Mm. for The Mavericks, ironically, Steve Nash's kids attend the same school my kids do now. And so I've actually seen him here in L.A. And, of course, as you know, he came to us late in his career. We didn't win any championships with him, but we're we're thankful for his uh, attempts. But there was a billboard promoting Steve, Steve Nash's MVP year and stellar year. And I saw this billboard driving down the highway one day. I'll never forget it. This had to be over 15 years ago. And it just had an image of Steve Nash diving for a ball. And the ball, Stephanie, was just out of his reach. But his face had such intensity. He was sweating. He was about two and a half, three feet parallel off the ground, reaching for this ball. And the caption said underneath, full throttle. Hmm. That's all it said. Yeah. What would it look like for the church to be full throttle, in making sure that racism runs out of places to hide.
0: I wrote down when you said it the first time that racism has run out of places to hide. When you think about Christendom right now, where do you believe that racism is hiding within the church?
1: In plain sight. it. You know, in her book, White Fragility, which I recommend, uh, D'Angelo discusses, Robin D'Angelo talks about racism is not an event. Racism is not some white man with a sheet burning across on your front lawn. That's an act of hate, that is an act of it, but racism at its core is a system. It's policies, it's procedures. From laws passed to hiring practices. And then that is expressly lived out in how we treat the least of these, the left over, the looked over. It's expressed in how our boards look, our executive leadership teams look. It's expressed in what our preaching series looks like. It's expressed in how we vote. It's expressed in our judicial system criminal justice system. See, racism allows an Ahmed Aubrey to be gunned down in a cul-de-sac in a suburban neighborhood in Georgia, and then those two white men in the broad daylight when police arrive, give their account, police ascertain information from other witnesses, take their accounts, then calls the deputy district attorney at home who happens to know the white father who killed Ahmaud Aubrey, and she tells those officers on the scene to stand down. And the two perpetrators of that crime go home for two and a half months. They never even went to the police station. Mm-hmm. Because the father, turns out, worked in the DA's office as an investigator. And, oh, by the way, a policy, procedures, the gun that was used to kill Mont Aubrey suspended concealed weapon permit. So forget the fact that he killed a man in cold blood, armless, defenseless, with no arm, to defend himself— he used a weapon that in and of itself was illegal for him to have outside of his, quote, kingdom, his home. See, that's a system. A system has it where the officer who killed George Floyd had 17 plus complaints against him for abusive force and other matters. That's a system. See, a system allows for Breonna Taylor to be gunned down in her home where she's living and sleeping With her boyfriend in the middle of the night with a no knock warrant, over 20 shots volleyed in her bedroom, killed while her husband's on the phone calling 911. He returns fire. He doesn't know who he is. Afterwards, she's dead. He's arrested. Oh, by the way, the officers on scene did not even come to the aid of Breonna Taylor. They had to call for additional support. He's arrested the boyfriend. Only charges were recently released, and only last week was the lead officer fired from his job. Yeah, that's a system. Mm-hmm. That's a policy, and so uh, it's it's convenient to have a goody goodlow speak at your church. But can I be the chairman of your board? Yeah. Can I be the chairman of your search committee for the next dean, for the next worship pastor? Can my firm be the accountant, accounting firm, to count, to 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 do your books? You know, I was talking to uh, Eric Bryant, who's at Gateway South up in Austin. Leads a campus up there. He and I wish to be on team together at another church here in Los Angeles. He told me, he said, "Goody, you'll be happy to know, man." I'm the only white guy on my campus pastoral team. I said, that's great. He said, goody, because I've I've taken on what is known as the Rooney Rule. And I said, that's awesome. Now, for your listeners, the Rooney Rule is named after Art Rooney, the former owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. It was put in place about 10, 15 years ago. And what they discovered in the NFL was that there continues to be, by the way, a dearth of African-American head coaches, even though in the league, over 90 percent of the league, 87, 90 percent of the league is African-American. There are no more than three African-American head coaches today in the NFL right now. I think that number is about it. There's no more. No, definitely no more than four. I want to say three. And so Art Rooney came up with this idea, this policy. What they discovered is that African-American coaches were not even getting interviewed for head coaching jobs. So the Rooney rule basically in place says now any owner who fills a vacancy within their team has to interview an African-American and or a person of color for their head coaching position. One, candidate pool expands. Two, allows for those candidates to get experience in the interview process and who? Hey, you may have a Tomlin. You may have a Tony Dungy. You may have a Marvin Lewis. You know, what if every church... What if every Christian institution has a Rooney rule? Call it what you want. Yeah. We tend to hire people that look like us, people that are comfortable, that we're comfortable with, people who think like us. There are a number of churches within the Dallas area, for example. I know, again, your podcast is not limited to just Dallas, but I'm speaking to specifically to the area that you and I both have in common. I can name five to six mega African-American pastors right now in Dallas area. That's your farm system right there. Yeah. For African American leaders. Well, goody, I can't we can't compete financially. Well, you know what? Find a way. What if we had a consortium or a partnership where African American churches would help us identify African American candidates who maybe are in the business sector sector or other aspects, telecommunications, what have you, but as a university, as a faith institution, a church. Uh, another church, we want to try to tap those lay people in your congregation. We want to be able to compete with the firms and companies they work for. They're Christian people. They're people of integrity. What if we said we can't master salary, but what if we could work something out? where between the church and the entity, in this is some predominantly white faith institution, maybe we could offer offset educational costs in addition to a financial salary package, and maybe the church can come alongside us in, in creating incentives for uh, a, someone in a private sector who happens to be a part of a mega or African-American church. Says, hey, this is a person I think your institution should consider being a part. And so there are ways in which we can, hey, as 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 leaders, as pastors, as university presidents, as athletic directors. Have you looked at the hiring criteria of your organization of fulfilling a particular area a department or or a position let's make sure that a hiring posture or policy is not exclusionary we can create a policy that literally excludes others and we can do that intentionally or unintentionally so these are some things that i think the church the church can play a role in one person said that this issue of racism remains the most complex social dilemma since the birth of this nation And I dare say it is the most complex social, spiritual issue since the birth of Christendom, since the beginning of the early church. Look at the scriptures. Ethnicity, culture, race was at the forefront from Peter's vision to the Samaritan story Jesus tells a young ruler, a rich young Jew. Think about it. To, to, to Jesus' parents hiding him in a place called Egypt, to Simon of Cyrene, a brother helping Jesus carrying the cross in his final moments. And, and so the question on the floor remains that great quest, that great question asked by of, of God to Cain and Abel in the absence of one. Where is your brother? Where is he? And so as Christians, we have to ask that question. Where are our brothers? Where are our sisters? You know, I was looking with great disappointment in in regard to this current administration. And it said that the person who has the office of the vice presidency could not even utter the refrain, Black Lives Matter. Of course, all lives matter, is the refrain. Goody, why are you so much on that? Well... You know, when it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you don't yell, hey, hey, all cancer matters. All cancer matters. Hey, how about when the Boston bombing happened? Boston Strong. (laughs) Hey, man, what about Philadelphia Strong? What are you talking about? Hey, this is the March of Dimes, right? We're raising money for this particular cause, right? We have... uh, we have example after example where we can point to if, if the house is on fire. Fire department shows up with fire hose ready to put out the fire. You don't come out of your neighborhood down at out your, out your house and say, hey, hey, what, all houses matter? And so the analogy is apropos, because when we look at disproportionate violence ending in death at the hands of police officers, there is an emergency. Absolutely. It's Ahmaud yeah. Aubrey. It's both. It's it, it's both them Sean. It's Atelia Jefferson. It's Brianna Taylor. It's John, Jonathan Farrell, It's Renisha McBride. It's Stephon Clark. It's Jordan Edwards. It's Jordan Davis. It's Alton Sterling. It's Yana Jones. It's Mike Brown. It's Tamir Rice. It's the Charlton Nine who were killed in Charlotte at a Bible study. It's Sean Bale. It's Oscar Grant. It's Sandra Bland. It's Faleo Castillo. It's Corey Jones. It's John Crawford. It's Terrence Critcher. It's Keith Scott. It's Clifford Glory. Is Claude Reese? Is Randy Evans? Is Yvonne Smallwood? Is Amanda Diallo? Is Walter Scott? Is Eric Gardner Is Freddie Gray? Is Chris Cooper? Is George Floyd? Is Rashad Brooks? Sounds like an emergency to me. If we, we say all lives matter, we say we all ma- made in the magical day, but we don't act like it. And lastly, I'll make this point. Listen, I believe on balance, most police officers, women and men. Serve valiantly, courageously, heroically, faithfully, executing their risk. but listen, we're not talking about specific officers only, we're talking about a system. Yeah. And so we can't have not just, we can't afford just to have not white fragility, in other, part, in other words, white people being so fragile, we can't even engage in the conversation that's the most critical in my lifetime. We can't have blue fragility. Like as if police officers somehow are infallible because they are sworn and have a badge and a gun. Name me another profession that's immune, absolved from criticism, rebuke, or analysis or critique or just getting or, or just for review in, in terms of getting better go ahead I'll wait N- name me one I, I, I preach and teach for a living people evaluate me all the time the class was too long lecture too long sermon analogies were too long we go to a restaurant We uh, food was terrible man don't use that doctor the wait was way too long you know what? Man, my the customer service at Amazon is amazing. American Express is amazing. Whole Foods, you don't even have to buy buy, you don't even have to bring a receipt. We we have reviews and analysis and critiques, and we offer, we offer yelp on everything and everybody, every profession. But somehow we've gotten in our minds because of police office, because they, they what they can't afford. What? Wait, wait, what? What? Show me where that is written. You do know, Stephanie, we have a vol Excuse me. We don't, we don't have a mandatory police department. We have It's not like Israel where you have a mandatory soldiers. I was in Israel 4 months ago and I saw young people. I'm talking 18, 19, 20, 20-year-old 20 young people walk around with AR-15s. Military service is required in Israel. You do know being a police officer is not required here in the United States. Yes. You do know they get paid. Yes. yes. So watch this. I want to be unequivocally clear if you are a racist if you have prejudice and your prejudice then moves you to have actions which discriminate against people if you have an anger problem if you can't not avoid shooting somebody in the back who's unarmed you know what you probably you probably shouldn't be in law enforcement i agree the philosopher and comedian chris rock said it this way he said you know what enough with the there are just a few bad apples excuses. He said there are some professions where we just can't afford to have bad apples. Hey, you don't hear, listen, I know American Airlines, one of their hubs is in Dallas. I tell you what's not American Airlines' uh, uh, motto. I tell you what, this is not their motto. Here it is. Hey, most of our pilots land at DFW safely. We just have a few bad apples who landed in the side of mountains every now and then the planes. But we're committed to you. That's not their slogan. That's not their motto.
0: Yeah, that would not work.
1: We cannot afford to have bad apples within police departments. Now, there are women and men who are fragile and broken, just like me and you. But police officers are not people who come in to do policing. They should be of us whose profession happened to be policing. Thus, community policing. And so when we talk about these issues, systemic racism and policies and procedures, and specifically the role of the church, what has the church done to not only bring awareness, but to act intentionally in helping give relief to people who are living with their backs against the wall? That's a
0: question that I've been asking in our organization um not only with our students but even our hiring like you and I like you were just talking about because that's something that I know we have to figure out I have to figure out as the director of that ministry um and so I think it's a very valid point that every person who's in leadership has to be able to answer Yep. Yeah. Cuz we yeah. a lot of my staff has to raise their own support and statistically, that is significantly easier for white ministers than it is for any person of color. And so I've started asking questions of saying, if I want a diverse staff, but they have to raise their own support, this policy does not work. We're never going to reach diversity unless we make some adjustments. And even some of those circumstances when it comes to our staffing is what we're trying to figure out now is how can I raise the funds? So the diversity can happen and it's, and a lot of it comes down to my friends that are people of color that work in churches, they're bivocational, they're working a full time job and doing ministry on the side, well, full time also, and it's just such a different context than what it is that I live in. And so it's been some situations like that, that I've had to wrestle with and to think through. I want a diverse staff. And so what is it that I need to do to get past the policy to make that happen? If that means right. I raise the funds, then I raise the funds.
1: And you know, that's, that shouldn't, it shouldn't be right. You know, mm-hmm. but sometimes it just may, requ- it just may take people doing courageous things, risking, you know, I was just reminded of, um, serena williams's husband who named escapes me now um uh who just resigned from the board uh his name is um alexis Ohanian. he just resigned from the board of Reddit, and basically he got up one morning and said honey i just think there's something i something more i could be doing on this issue of race and racism in our nation he helped founded this company and he basically said um You know what? I'm going to resign and I'm going to ask the board to replace me with an African-American. And he did. He did it. um, He did it just about two weeks ago. And people were looking at that and were stunned. Now, that may be extreme for some people. But here we have often is extreme in the other direction where no one. A lot of people is doing nothing rather. So if that's extreme, what I would say is, what is it that you're doing to help address these issues? And so I applaud you for that. But I think we're at that moment. I think we're at that time. Um, the, the Germans have a term called Zeitgeist. And Zeitgeist speaks to the mo the, the mood, the climate, the texture, the attitudes, the beliefs of that time, of a particular period in time. And so the events of George Floyd we saw play out on the streets of Minneapolis uh, captured the zeitgeist of the 21st century as it relates to racial tensions between policing and communities. I believe uh, the church right now in its role uh, stands to capture the zeitgeist, the the attitudes the beliefs the, of the heart the mind the attitudes the culture of this present day like literally i think we are at a crossroads like where we we it is it is it is when i say it is not an extension of the gospel i believe this issue is core to the teachings of jesus i believe this is a central Listen, Jesus was not only concerned about life after death, he was concerned about life after birth.
0: Yeah.
1: And we dare not try to put people in heaven if we're not addressing the conditions in which they live in now. From facing a pandemic of COVID that's disproportionately impacting people of color, by the way, mm-hmm. to an administration that has been acting with impunity in terms of enforcing policies, quite frankly, that are immoral and unjust. Under George W. Bush, there were 12 police departments under consent decree and investigations for abusive use of power. Under Barack Hussein Obama, there were 15 administrations under consent decree or investigation by the Justice Department for police abuse of power. Under this current administration, zero. In 2017, this president stood at a national convention gathered by law enforcement and chiefs of police from around the nation. And jokingly said, hey, I know it's said that when you're luring a suspect in the car to tell them to watch their head lest they hit it on the door frame. And he jokingly said, but you know what? You don't have to worry about that. It's okay to let them hit their heads. You he said, Goody, what does this have to do with every anything? Leadership.
0: Yeah.
1: Leadership to set the tone. It's about... What you talk about as pastors, what you talk about a bit as business leaders, what you talk about as sports head coaches, environment—we want to have a winning environment, men, women. We want to establish a winning culture. We want to establish a just culture, an advocacy culture. I don't want my leadership to be in question on the issues related to race, racism. But that's the case when you have good people on, quote, both sides, when a woman is run over by white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia, three years ago. Or when you use an inverse triangle in your political ad just last week to try to make a political point about a group that doesn't even use the symbol because they're anarchists. Yeah. And so... Let me be clear, Stephanie, because I, I, I think I mentioned this to you ahead of time when you asked me to come on your show. Mm-hmm. I have used great restraint as a spiritual leader and even as an academic in the last three years. And there I say the last eight or nine years, you'll be hard pressed to see me. Whether my social media platforms or otherwise, you can count on your hands a number of times. I have been as explicit as I ha- am today and will be moving forward because I've given not only time, but I've given due deference, benefit of a doubt. I've allowed processes. I've hoped. I've prayed. I've expected. I've wished. I've desired. I've lamented. I've cried. I've appealed. I've had a lot of one on ones. But I am committed to use every aspect of my influence To be not only priestly, but prophetic.
0: Thank you for that.
1: And we cannot afford to be ambiguous when it comes to people in leadership. Blessing, honoring, esteeming. We're quick to point out the scripture says we ought to honor those in authority. Mm -hmm. Hey, could it ever, did it ever occur to you that the majority of the people, the kings in Israel were corrupt and abused the people of Israel. Did it ever occur to you? Mm-hmm. And so I reject the notion that somehow we disunify. We becoming dis. We 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 are bringing disunity to the body of Christ. We're bringing in politics. We need to pray. No 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 no. Time out. We have a responsibility to not be prophetic when it's convenient. When Nathan's having a conversation with David, when Saul, Samuel's having a conversation with Saul, and I could, I could not help but think of the image anymore of that with Saul and Samuel. When Saul is disobedient, when Samuel goes away, he comes back. What have you done? What's this bleeding out here? What's going on? Make a long story short. Samuel communicates, hey, listen, your time is up. Your power is up. Your reign is up. You, you're going to hold the position, but you will have no power. It's only a matter of time. We're, we're going to we're going to start the search. You're the biggest loser and people may not realize it, but, you know, and as he reaches for Samuel, tearing his garment, Samuel says, so the kingdom is torn from you. Samuel asked, hey, uh, Saul, asked Samuel, stay with me, lest the people will know or think. That God is with me if you're standing next to me. He wanted Samuel to remain with him, even though he knew that the power of God, the throne, the leadership mantle was no longer. Yeah, we'll go to, and we'll say nothing. When the leader of this free world stands in front of an empty church, boarded up, having used tear gas. To disperse peace for protests, stand with a Bible in hand. We say nothing. We say nothing. How dare you? How dare you? But yet five years ago, we'll interrupt heaven and hell to criticize a man for kneeling peacefully at the playing of a national anthem because he was trying to bring attention to this issue of Black Lives Matter and police brutality. And now... From Starbucks to Johnson & Johnson, from the NFL to the NASCAR, to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to the NBA commissioner. Everybody says Black Lives Matter now.
0: Yeah.
1: I want to get to some practical things. And to equip my brothers and sisters Because I, I I believe there are some people Here who are listening What I have said If it has made you uncomfortable Then I have achieved my Partly I've achieved my goal in part But my goal is not to make you uncomfortable Only my goal is to move you to action yeah. Now I believe there will be some of you Who reject what I've said outright And uh, I'm just going to believe and trust God that he's going to speak to your heart. I know this as I told a a colleague of mine who gave me a call last week and had some comments to say about things I've been saying I said you know what during the Civil War Abraham Lincoln heard troops on both sides asking that God the prayer was that God would be on their side in this quest to win the war and Lincoln responded paraphrasing our prayer is that we would hope but not that god is on our side but that we are on god's side yeah i'm going to tell you something i know unequivocally on this issue that god is with me yeah and so it will not be said that in 2020 i abdicated i hesitated i punted i was ambiguous i was unclear i was tunnel vision i was reluctant Short-sighted, I have moral clarity on the issues of this day. Harvey Cox in his book, When Jesus Came to Harvard, said, we have to identify the issues of our time and see them as moral issues, two, and then summon the courage, three, to do what we know needs to be done. We have to have moral courage. We are in that hour. So Steph, can I give you a couple practical things? I'll run through these real quick. Do we have time for that? Absolutely. Okay, so I want your listeners to grab a just grab a sheet of paper. I want you to do this first. Stephanie, you do it too. Mm -hmm. Grab a sheet of paper. Listeners, wherever you are, if you're having time, if you can't do this. Now if you're driving, don't do this. But I want you to take a sheet of paper, and I'm going to do it with you too, Steph, so you can see. I want you to draw, take your paper, just lay it flat. I want you to draw a line from left to right straight across, just going straight across. And in the center of that line, I want you to draw the number zero, just underneath it. Fine. Basically, we're going to do a number line. Mm -hmm. To the right of zero, Mm -hmm. I want you to draw one, space it with a two, space it with a three, space it with a four. To the left, I want you to draw negative one, space it, negative two, space it, negative three, space it, four, negative four. At the very top of your number line, the very top above, let's call this, let's call this racism or racist being the person, racism being not an act but structure policies, racist person. The goal of this conversation The goal of us for being followers of the teachings of Jesus. I think we all can agree being a racist or having racism is not on the plus side of this negative of this number line. Let's just call that a two negative two or three. Put a point little dot. Watch this. The goal is not for you to stop being a racist. Or having acts of racism, because watch this—that would just move you to zero. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah. That—that—that's too. The scripture says, "It is too small a thing for you to be, uh, for be a light to the people of Israel and those that I have kept." Paraphrasing, the scripture says, to "The prophet Isaiah instead I will make you a light to the nations." So that my salvation may go to the ends of the earth. In other words, watch this. It's too small a thing. It's 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 not significant. Christ did not die on the cross for me and you to just stop sinning. Yeah. Stop cheating. Stop lying. Lo- Look, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the bare minimum. Don't bear false witness, take the Lord's name in vain. Don't don't steal. Don't don't kill. Don't take your wife, your neighbor's wife honor the Sabbath, honor your mother and father Eight days may be, that's bare minimum. Jesus has called for us to bear fruit, though. Yeah. So how can we get to plus one? See that? See, our goal is to get to plus one, plus three. So my goal is not for you to just to stop being racist or stop being prejudiced. My goal is for you to be plus one, to have life and to be a, 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 an emitter of life. And having people understand that they can have it through the person of Jesus and have it abundantly. Come on. So here it is. Real quick. Listen up. Write these down for all your listeners. Steffi, I know you're writing too. Real quick. Here we go. Here are things you can do right now. One, speak up. You need to speak up. You need to declare like those who would herald in the town centers. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Racism is running out of places to hide. At my dinner table, at my family reunion picnics, in the pulpits of my churches, in my boardroom, in my executive room, in my lecture hall, in my syllabus as a professor, in my accounting firm. Come on, speak up. You hear the crass jokes. In the, in the in the locker room, around the water cooler. Speak up. Two, support. There are organizations that are in the fight. Support them. Give That's right, give your money. You can't, listen, you may can't go and march, although I would encourage you to go and do that if you can. Perhaps you can't go to a courthouse and support and stand in the, in the uh, gallery and watch litigation on behalf of a, person accused unjustly but you know what you can do you can give your money to the NAACP legal defense fund to the equal justice initiative think of the film just mercy that's brian Stevenson's group you can give to sojourners there are people that are in the fight i'm in the fight i got on a plane three weeks ago flew to minneapolis minnesota myself because i wanted to do and what cornell Wett Cornell West, the scholar, teacher says, I wanted to bear our prophetic witness to the injustices that had taken place on the streets of Minneapolis. Read. Write that down. Read. Read books. Read articles. Read the books. The Warmth of Other sons by Isabel Wilkerson. The New Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander. The New Jim Crow. White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. White Fragility. Between the World and Me.
0: That was the first time I read.
1: Yep, Between the World and Me by Tania C. Coates. Michael Eric Dyson, the Michael Eric Dyson reader. And know this, number four, racism is a system. It's not an isolated event. It just doesn't happen on the Minneapolis streets or in the Central Park of New York where a white woman calls the police threatened to cause the police to a African American who's a bird watcher, graduate from Harvard. Just about it's just not about a suburban city in Brunswick, New Jersey. Excuse me, in Brunswick, uh, Georgia, Brunswick, Georgia. Racism is a system with biases and sinful strongholds, through and through. It would take more than prayers to dismantle that system. It would take you voting for your city council members, your local district attorneys, your mayor, your governor, and a president. Reject the narrative. Be careful of language we use. Yep, George Floyd had a record. Yep, he sure did. And the... uh, the, uh, the African-American brother who was killed in Atlanta, Mr. Rashard Brooks, was on probation. Yep, he sure was. Let's not be too quick to point out a person's issues, sins, what have you, looking for opportunities to justify or say things like, oh, it's sad. You know, he was a father. She was a mother. So tragic. This is really bad. You know what? No, it's really bad if I spill coffee on my shirt. That's bad. Let's call it like we see it. Let's be mindful of the language. George Floyd's death is tragic, not because he was a good father, not because he was trying to get his life back together. George Floyd's death was tragic because he is made in the Imago Dei, and his life did not deserve to be ended on the pavement streets of Minneapolis, Minnesota for eight minutes and 46 seconds for all the world to see. Engage your faith that's one, engage your faith faith without works is dead James says if you are a person of faith use the scriptures to guide you but engage in research have information, investigate examine understand the context and culture in which you are living out your faith When listen in Jesus' time he never ministered void of context Jesus served and ministered in context with policies, with procedures, with laws, with programs. When Barabbas and Jesus are gathered there, Pontius Pilate comes out and says, listen now, y'all know how we do this in honor of the annual feast. We're going to release a prisoner. Who do you guys want? Give us Barabbas. I tell people that's an example of of a pardon. That's an example of early parole. It's a policy. When Mary and Joseph had to travel to go and be accounted for the census. That's a policy. That's government. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's a policy. That's government. So government or politics is not bad in and of itself. Politics allow for you to get the tax break you got as a non-profit allows for you to get the certification you have to sell products wherever you sell them for your business. You have to go to the city council to to address issues of water, uh, water and waste issues related to your property of business. So politics is not inherently bad. We need folks who are followers of Jesus in every aspect of society. So engage your scriptures, but also engage context. Real quickly, read the letter from Birmingham jail, please. Just read the letter. Dr. King wrote what I believe to be an epistle. It's the closest thing we have to that epistle equivalent to Paul or John when he wrote, for example, an item, island of Patmos when he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Read letter from Birmingham jail. And then lead. Romans 12, 8 says leadership is a gift. And if you have the gift of leadership, you should lead with all diligence. I'm calling on pastors, university presidents, athletic directors, business leaders. I'm calling on chaplains. I'm calling on head coaches. I'm calling on deans of students. I'm calling on every woman and man who is in leadership, who is influencing policies, culture, people. I'm calling on you to lead in this issue. You know, as a professor early on in class, whenever the semester starts, they have they send me a document. They say, Dr. Goodlow, we want you to account for the students that are here in your class. Have they shown up? Now, when we did classes live, I would call your name. I would say, you know, Stephanie Gates. And I expect you to say here, here. Aki, present. We are at the most critical moment in my lifetime. I'm 49 years old. And I expect all people in leadership who've been entrusted to lead others to be accounted for. Are you here? Are you here? There ought to be a seismic shift in your spirit, in your teaching, in your focus, in your compassion, in your empathy, in your sympathy, in your resolve, in your tenacity, in your grit, in your leadership, in your fervor, in your ideology, in your very presence. You ought to be here. Whatever sermon series you put together two months ago, tear it up. Whatever your vision and strategic plan was six months ago, tear it up. Why? Why? Because we have had a seismic shift In both the social, economic, spiritual, physical And emotional landscapes of our nation And you have to see this zeitgeist moment You you have to see this Don't miss this Washington Irvin, Irvin wrote a book sleeping through a revolution tells a tale of what brand winkle fell asleep on the side of a hill when he had, when he was sleeping it was under british rule when he had awakened george washington was president slept through a revolution don't sleep through this revolution listen ask questions resist the narrative and then lastly The psalmist says it this way, Psalm 90, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the works of our hand for us. Yes, establish the works of our hands. This psalm is offered, it's the oldest psalm, and it's written by Moses, the lawgiver, the prince of Egypt, the shepherd boy, the murderer, the wanderer, And when he writes this, it's a time of uncertainty, not only for Moses, but for his people. That Moses who saw the promised land but didn't enter it, that Moses who was buried himself, Moses was buried by God, and to this day, no one knows where his body lay. But Moses writes this psalm and he says, May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. In other words, God's favor. Is God's ultimate emoji. It is is the thumbs up beyond you can imagine. I want God's favor to rest upon everything I'm doing. And so watch this. Your church, your business, your organization, your university, your team, I believe, needs the favor of God to be upon in order to be successful.
0: Yeah.
1: You need to ask for that. And then he says, may, may he establish the works of our hands. In other words, everything we are doing, may the foundation be established by God. So we dare not build anything, organize anything, advance anything that is not undergirded, established by God. And so that's my prayer for you, Stephanie, for your listeners, for, for ministries and organizations from chaplaincy programs, I know you're part of leading a sports team. I, and in one of my books, Kingmaker, I talk about how the role of sports and it, athletes and entertainers play in advancing social discourse. They did that with Dr. King. Whether you're an athlete or a sports coach or a chaplain, a business leader, a university president, a law enforcement, a chief of police, I challenge you to ask for God's favor, to rest upon you, for him to establish your the works that you're doing. I challenge you at this defining moment in Christendom to lead with all diligence. Don't miss this moment. Too much is at stake. I back the blue, but I dog show sure for sure support Black Lives Matter. They're not mutually mus- they're not mutually exclusive. That I I can be a chaplain to the Redondo Police Department, which I am. I can do leadership development to that same department, which I do, and six other departments and speak for annual conference of chiefs of police where 80 are gathered, which I have done the last three years. I can do that. But I can also get on a plane, fly to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and tell the world from that space and spot where George Floyd met his life, and tell the world This act is one of many acts that have happened across this nation in some level, in some extreme, to one particular group of people, disproportionately that to any other group. And we have a problem. We have a problem. I'm hopeful. I'm encouraged. I'm yet believing. But don't get it twisted. I'm, I'm guarded. Yeah because the jury's out, the jury's out. We have, we have, we have, we have some work to do.
0: We do. Dr. Goodlow, I thank you for all that you've shared, just for uh, the wisdom and the encouragement and the bluntness and the boldness, all of which I welcomed and wanted. Um, I appreciate just the prophetic voice that you are, are boldly proclaiming and, uh, I will be praying for the Lord's protection and opportunity for you to speak because I believe that what you have to say needs to be heard. And I thank you for sharing it with me and for sharing it with whoever may listen and, um, I appreciate the action steps uh, for us to consider, especially may we lead with diligence and may we question is the favor of God resting upon us, especially as a ministry leader, uh, I think. I always ask myself in tense moments of conflict, um, what if I'm wrong? I want to be humbly bowing before the Lord to say, check me. Am I right or am I wrong? And I think right now that's where many Christian leaders need to be. What if I'm wrong? And that last statement, may the favor of God rest upon us. I think as we humbly submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to continue to reveal what our role needs to look like. He's going to give us the power to speak and give us boldness uh, to engage. And so I appreciate um, the practicality of what you gave, as well as the information to help us learn. Um, And so thank you, because I know that those are not easy things to speak about. And I know that they're not easy um, to boldly proclaim. But thank you for your bravery and thank you for your honesty. And thank you for allowing the Lord to speak uh, in and through you. I really appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Honor to be with you and all your listeners and uh, just uh, pray God's blessing is up on you. And as you lean in and lead and, and uh, don't shrink back,
0: No,
1: don't shrink back, step into this moment, mm-hmm. shoulders back face like a flint. And as Jesus says, said he must go through Samaria. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is our must go through Samaria moment. We, 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 we must come by this way. We, when Jesus tells the story of the Great Samaritan, of the Good Samaritan, although it's called the Samaritan story, I don't use that term normally good because that in of itself implies bias. But when he tells the story of the Samaritan to the rich young Jew who asked, who is my neighbor? Dr. King tells, retells that story in saying that the priest and the Levi came along seeing that man who was bruised and beaten on that road And they asked the question probably to themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan came along and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, if I do not stop to inject myself into this movement of Black Lives Matter, of racism, of ropes and nooses being hung and NASCAR garages of the only African-American race car driver. Yeah. If I do not stop to help this, what will happen to him? Hmm. We need to have a reversal of the question. Yeah.
0: You're right. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for so much for the uh, donation. We appreciate that
0: absolutely. And I look forward to getting to continue to watch you from afar, uh, follow you on social media, and of course get to hear about you uh, through DBU and those type of things. And
1: uh, thank you so much. I up until it's kind of looking a little uncertain now, <laughs> but I was due there in two weeks. I don't know yeah. if we're still going to do it. Uh, Doctor Wright was uh, had asked me to come to Dallas. I'm I'm willing to come, but. I'm not sure if we're going to do it now, but uh, we basically are going to have a, mm-hmm. uh, a family meeting. Yeah, and so uh, stay tuned for that because if that happens, we will definitely let let people know about it. It's going to be uh, for our students and faculty and an alumni. And he and I have obviously been talking and stuff, but I told my yes, I would come and.
0: If you would like to continue this conversation you can contact me at stephaniegatessloan.com the music was created by my talented friend vince romanelli
1: thanks for listening